Quarter Rest is available on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Overcast, YouTube, and most likely anywhere else that you would happen to listen to podcasts. You can also visit our website, podbean.com slash quarterrestpod, where all episodes can be streamed or downloaded. If you'd like to reach out to me, host of the show, feel free to email quarterrestpodcast at gmail.com. Keep it civil, and I'll probably respond. Subscribe today, leave reviews, and share with your friends. Thank you. Welcome to today's episode. Today, I will be interviewing an ethnomusicology PhD candidate at Columbia. His name is Kyle DeCoste. Me and Kyle go way back. We are old friends, have been for well over 10 years. Kyle has done a master's degree at Tulane University in New Orleans is currently doing his PhD, as I said, at Columbia. You may have heard of it. It's a little-known school in New York City, and we are going to be discussing his ethnomusicological work, his academic work, which deals heavily in the music of New Orleans, and probably we'll be talking about some current events, which may or may not have relevance to the topics at hand. So, Kyle, welcome. Hey, Joe. Thanks so much for having me. It's, uh, it's so nice to see your, your smiling face. Oh, thank you. Well, the uh, podcast audience won't be able to see my smiling face, but thank you for letting them know all about it. It is all the same. Very great to, to at least hear your, your wonderful podcast voice. Thank you, Kyle. Well, I'm really glad to have you here. No, thanks so much for having me. So let's talk about Columbia a little bit. You have been studying there for how long? Uh, so I'm just uh, finishing up my fourth. Well, I've just finished up my fourth year, actually. So I've, I've, I moved up there um, in August of 2016, um, and that was from New Orleans. Right. So you were coming from Tulane in New Orleans, and before that you lived... And before that I lived... So the, I mean, I guess that we could just do the whole kind of trajectory, right? So Nova Scotia is where, where I was born, and then where we met was in Lenoxville, Quebec at Bishop's University um, right. on the mighty Massawippi shore. And, uh, and then, um, yeah. And then after that, uh, I spent like a year in Montreal and, uh, and that's when I kind of applied to grad school and, and kind of figured out that I wanted to do this whole music academic type of thing. Um, and then that's when I got to, to New Orleans, 2013, I guess it was. So, so three years in New Orleans and then the last four have been in New York. So talk to me a little bit about New Orleans, because your research deals with the music of New Orleans, not all of it, but a particular subset of it. So we'll get into that a little bit, but just tell me about New Orleans, like what drew you there? What made you decide to do a master's in New Orleans? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it was kind of, um, I don't know, there are a whole bunch of like weird sort of things that kind of fell into place, I guess the year like after after undergrad. Or, or the year, our last year of undergrad. So Jack Eby, um, who's like a lovely um, sweater vested, uh, mustachioed um, musicologist from Bishops, who we both studied with, he kind of was like, hey, Kyle, 
you know, why don't you do this this honors thesis project on like New Orleans trumpet players? Um, and this this kind of happened because my trumpet teacher at the time could no longer be my trumpet teacher. He became a linguistics professor at the University of Sherbrooke. So I was left without a trumpet teacher and I didn't know what I was doing. And then J Jack just suggested, oh, why don't you check this out? You know, because I'm a trumpet player and, you know, he knows like he knew about, I mean, Jack's music, you know, his, his research is on, um, is on the, the court composer for Louis the 16th, yep. you know, so very far away from anything that I did, obviously, but Jack is really, you know, just such a, a great mentor. And he was like, you know, why don't you, you check that out? Yeah. So Jack Eby, just yeah. in case it isn't clear, he's an, he's a musicologist himself. He, he, he has that background. And so he was sort of encouraging you to follow in that same direction. I mean, I got, you know, I, I think it was like around, you know, we took a few classes together and I started to really get interested in research. You remember research and bibliography, yep. you know, like the nerdiest class to get really into. <laughs> but but, you know, it, it was kind of like a, a really good introduction to like, you know, research and writing and that sort of thing. And I don't know, I, I really like the idea of it. And um Jack suggested that. Right. And so I'm in, you know, my last year of undergrad and uh, and I was kind of trying to figure out what the next steps were. Because you were studying music. Yeah, stu yeah, studying music at the time. Sorry, there's a lot of background information that... Totally. No, it's it's all good. We're yeah. <laughs> filling, in, filling in the blanks as we go. But yeah, so so um, so yeah, so he just suggested that. And then I, uh, I was at a bar one night and uh, ran into someone who I knew uh, who was like, oh, it just so happens that I'm going down to New Orleans with a couple friends. We're driving down from Ottawa uh, for spring break. And and so this this random opportunity, just because I was I was out with with some friends, uh, turned into this this opportunity to go down to New Orleans. And so there was just this this opportunity came up and I was like, that sounds great. I think I can, pay, you know, get together like three hundred dollars and find a way to make it down. And so so that's what we did. You know, we we rented a car and drove down. And that was my first time ever going to New Orleans. So this would have been 2012, I guess. Sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. So that was 2012. And and I remember going to see the Rebirth Brass Band uh, at the Maple Leaf, which is like an iconic New Orleans venue. You know, um, I remember doing all kinds of like, I don't know, just seeing lots of live music. And then the, during the day, I would spend the time in the archive, uh, the jazz archive uh, at Tulane University. Um, and so that was kind of my introduction to music research in new orleans was just like being down there hanging out and going to the archive during the day and so oh, right on so you were actually hitting the archives during that first visit this was a spring break visit and you were hitting the archives during the day that's great yeah that's exactly what i was doing two of the people i, I were with like i you know, were on bourbon street and got arrested um, you know it's like uh, you know they were they were like really going out and having a party time and i was in the archives just kind of plugging away by day. Yeah, by day, of course. And then and then going out. By night, you were enjoying the city. Of course, of course, you know. Um, but, you know, and I'm not going to say it was all that, but um, but I was definitely like, you know, I'm doing this thesis project. This seems like a really good opportunity. You know, I'd done like a bunch of readings, you know, like music history stuff. And so, you know, I, I'd started to get very um, familiar with like some of the, the like, you know, the, the names um, in terms of like New Orleans jazz history. And so, yeah, it, it was like it was kind of my that was kind of my introduction. And then I, I applied and got into the master's program at Tulane, which is a really, really cool program. It's a master's program in musicology. And that's like it, it, it's a really cool program in the sense that it's it's got a, a paid stipend with it, which is really nice. So, you know, you, you go there and uh, and they 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 pay you to, to be a T.A. basically. And 
Yeah, you do that sort of thing. But but it's it's nice because it's a terminal master's program. So, you know, that was kind of my that's, you know, the first time that I moved down to the US uh, was for that. And then, yeah, it gave me time to figure out what the next steps were after that, I guess. That's great. So that master's thesis you did was on music of New Orleans. What specifically what type of music were you focusing on in that that undergrad thesis you were doing? Uh, okay, so so the undergrad thesis, yeah, that was like um, it was just like a music historical overview, sort of ish of early like New Orleans trumpet and cornet players, like in jazz. So like around the turn of the century, yeah. So that it was like a historical thing. Okay, yep. But like that was just me kind of figuring out sort of the lay of the land. Like I, you know, it's not like I was taking classes in, you know, I mean, we had taken some jazz history classes and stuff like that. But that was like a, you know, a bit of a deeper dive. So it was a pretty high level overview? Yeah, yeah. I wasn't like getting super granular and talking about like, you know, this musician, you know, because I'd only really had like maybe a, a week to kind of fiddle around in the archives. And I had no idea what I was doing while I was there. It's not like I had a super, I tried to be systematic about it. But you know, um, I was just like, writing, you know, frantically writing notes and word documents and, and trying to figure out what research is, you know, anyway, what it's supposed to look like in an archive. Oh, so you were doing hands on learning, nothing wrong with that. Yeah, yeah I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> So before we get in too much deeper, you're an ethnomusicology guy. Could you maybe just explain like what is ethnomusicology? How does it differ from just basic musicology? And oh, by the way, what is musicology? For listeners who who, who appreciate music but have really no exposure to the academic side of things, I mean, musicology sounds like, well, it's the study of music, but how does that differ from like music theory? Like if you could just kind of explain musicology and then maybe uh, narrow it down and talk about ethno a little bit. Okay. I think that would be great. Yeah, sure. So do you want like a long answer, Joe? I want a reasonably succinct, but, you know, helpful answer. Okay. Okay, cool. So, so musicology uh, was kind of st- is the systematic study of music, more or less. Okay. You know, a lot of people look to this dude named uh, Guido Adler as kind of uh, the, the father of musicology or whatever you know i mean there's you know Guido these, adler okay. yes yeah yeah and and never heard and that name it was music wissenschaften uh i think was was what it was called um and it was kind of it was mostly concerned with kind of um aesthetics okay uh and that sort of thing so that's like the 19th century and then something else developed out of that called comparative musicology okay musicology was mostly based with based on like aesthetics and western aesthetics so it's like just western art music basically right yeah Classical music, what we what most people would just call classical music. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so that's like Beethoven, Chopin, that kind of stuff. Precisely. Yeah. So and so um yeah, and so anything else I guess is not music to to those folks. So so very colonial, super racist kind of ideology, right? Of course. Um nineteenth century. What do you expect? Right. And then comparative musicology uh really isn't that much better in a lot of senses. Uh, you know, but they they started to branch out and and there was um this one, uh, like, uh, are you, I mean, you're a guitarist, Joe. And so yes, when you're tuning the guitar and a, a tuner has scents on it. Yep. So those scents, uh, the, the scent system was developed by a guy named Alexander Ellis. Okay. Uh, like, and, and his whole, uh, his whole idea was like, oh, you know, like we have semitones and we have this pitch system, you know, in Western art music, but what about all these other musics, you know? And so he developed the scent system in order to compare musics from around the world oh interesting and so and so this i had no idea yeah and so this thing developed called comparative musicology and this is uh you know most mostly european but then 
but then uh, with the kind of rise of cultural anthropology, um, like Franz Boas, you've probably heard of, yeah, yep. you know, Margaret Mead, or Neil Hurston, yep. you know, these very famous um, folks. So, but, uh, you know, that was developing, um, there was folklore and these other sorts of disciplines, but ethnomusicology as a, as a formal name kind of came up in the fifties. Okay. When when they realized that there was a bunch of eth- a bunch of musicologists um, and anthropologists who were like trying to find a sort of disciplinary home, and they created ethnomusicology and the Society for Ethnomusicology, and there's all this kind of um, activity around there. So ethno um, is basically just a prefix that means um, nation or people. Sure. Um, and so it's the music of different peoples, or yeah, ethnos. Yeah, it's the it's Greek, I think, or something like that. I think it's Greek. Yeah. Yeah, so so that's basically what so ethnomusicology uh, kind of developed in the fifties, um, and there's also you know it's a pretty colonial in a lot of ways. Like there shouldn't actually be, you know there's a whole other separate for everything that's basically not white European music, which is really messed up. The idea that non-European music needs to have a prefix, while European music does not have a, a prefix, shows you something about the biases and the kind of ethno uh, the the Western. The word I'm looking for is Eurocentrism. It's ethnocentrism. Yeah, Eurocentrism, ethnocentrism. Well, ethnocentrism, but specifically the Eurocentrism of the early fathers of, of this field. Right. So white supremacists. I mean, it, you know, in essence, like that is what it is. The, the, the kind of stru- the way it's built in structurally, you know, it's it's musicology is this one thing. Ethnomusicology is another. I mean, that's a, a kind of ridiculous thing. I think the, the, the ethno prefix is you know, by now it should be long gone and I wish we could just heave it away. So you don't prefer the term ethnomusicology? Like it's it's there and you have to kind of deal with it, but it's not, you have some, some issues with it. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, you know, it's a discipline that I've been trained in and I definitely like deeply appreciate ethnomusic. I, 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 I deeply appreciate the methods of it. So like interviews and stuff like that. So Ethnomusicology is really like, to me at least, like it's the methodology from um, from anthropology that's super important. So ethnography is another term, mm-hmm. um, which is just the writing about people. Um, and so I I look at that as more of like a kind of uh, I don't know, like more of a humanist type of type of thing. You know, like uh, writing about people. I, I like writing about people. I like doing interviews and stuff like that. I'm glad to hear it. So I, I like the methodology of it, but but I'm not like super into the, I don't know, just kind of the disciplinary conjunctures. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that reflects the history of the discipline, right? So anything that has its roots in the 19th century or that basic time period is going to have you know, contain within it the legacy of the ideology of the time, which certainly in Europe was all about European supremacy and superiority over the rest of the world, colonization of the world. I mean, that's what was going on historically at that time. And it was certainly going to leave an impact on the way people talk about things. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. And so like right now, like we're seeing like there's a kind of swell and kind of like decolonial um, ethnomusicological work and like anti-racist work and stuff, which I really, you know, like you can either defect from ethnomusicology entirely or try to kind of redefine it. And there are a lot of like young scholars who are like doing really great work like that now. And yeah. So, you know, you kind of take the good with the bad. Um, and I like the absolutely I like the methodological things. The, the methodological aspect of ethnomusicology, I, I deeply appreciate. Great. All right. Well, I'm sure we'll circle back around to this, but I thought it would be good to just get that out of the way yeah. early on so that the uh, the lay listener 
is not lost in all very, the terminology. Very, very tangential explanation of what ethnomusicology is. It was a, an excellent explanation. So what, I mean, I guess you've sort of already answered this, but what drew you to ethnomusicology specifically? Was it really just a path that you sort of found yourself on? Or was there ever a moment when you when you maybe could have chosen between different paths and you said, no, ethnomusicology is the thing for me? Yeah. So, I mean, that kind of that happened probably while I was in New Orleans. So 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 in New Orleans, uh, my master's thesis, uh, I wrote about um, the original Panette's Brass Band. And they are um, like an all female brass band down in New Orleans. They're absolutely awesome. They've got um, a Friday night residency at this this bar called Bullet Sports Bar. And I've been going, you know, I've, I've been going there for years and years and years. Oh, well, I have been by the, at this point. But uh, but the Panettes, uh, they've got this really great residency. And I wrote kind of, you know, like I, I grew up playing with with a bunch of women trumpet players, oddly enough, like in high school. That's interesting. Um, which is like a, because I did not. Yeah. Which is like it's a unusual really thing. Yeah. So like there was always like the first trumpet players and I was like the one guy in the first trumpet player, like in the first trumpet section like in high school which was always yeah yeah all throughout high school like oh wow that's interesting yeah high school and junior high actually like i was always the only guy for whatever reason i don't know why that is it is what it is that's good yeah but but so then i like went down to new orleans and i was like oh there are like no women trumpet play except for like in this one band right um and so i was like that's really interesting and uh there you know there's a lot of stuff like written on you know, race and class in New Orleans music. But I was like, oh, what about gender? So I wrote a thesis about that, um, about gender and about the, the Panettes um, and kind of like this really awesome residency that they have there. And uh, and kind of like the way that they like carve out a space for them, like in the brass band scene. So like there are a lot mm-hmm. of like lyrics that like they can't necessarily sing, for example, because like it's really awkward. So like how do they negotiate those things? Like how do they kind of like make their way into the brass band scene um, like as women? So songs that are part of like yeah. the canon of brass band of brass band music that don't really fit because they're all women. Yeah. So like lyrical content, for okay. example. So like there's this one song named, named Ca- called Casanova. Um, and, and the lyrics are like, bitch, bend over, take them off, take your motherfucking drawers off. And so, you know, those, I'm just, I can curse on this, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. All right. Um, so, so anyway, that's, uh, those are the lyrics, right? And it's just, it's a, it's a very different type of song when you're, when you're covering it, when when women are covering it, right? Because it's like, yeah, definitely bitch bend like, like, what are we talking about here? You know, so they could have like inverted it or flipped it, you know, but they, they, they did an alteration. So they, they actually like took it back to the original version of the song, which is, um, can't, uh, like, uh, the words are like, can't you see how much I really love you? And, you know, it's like, it's a very poetic song actually, uh, by, by Levert, uh, Gerald Levert. Um, so, so anyway, so they, they take this song and they, they change the lyrics around and this is how they're able to kind of, um, you know, so, so I, I'm thinking about these songs as almost like black feminist texts, you know? Um, and I think, you know, I, so that's what I kind of try and do in the, the article that I eventually wrote based on that, thinking about that and then thinking, thinking about kind of, um, yeah, that, that, that was basically what, what that article was about. So that was kind of like the master's thesis. And did you do interviews with the band? I'm assuming yeah, you did. Yeah. So, yeah. So, um, I did interviews with, uh, there's like nine members, I think right now. I did interviews with like five of them, sometimes a couple interviews. So that was like, like really my first introduction. Like, I really learned like methodology, like how to do ethnomusicology from just like hanging out and, being like, hey, do you want to do an interview? Like, that's 
you know, you kind of learn it as you go. That's actually pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. It's and it, you know, it's like a lot better than I mean, I shouldn't say a lot better, but for me, I find it a lot more satisfactory to be able to actually engage with people instead of like reading, you know, a score or, you know, something like that. And sure, of course, you know, it's nice to be and it's nice for people to be able to read about themselves sometimes, too, you know. So I think I think like one thing that I want to like move a little bit more towards is like more public forms of writing, um, you know, so like writing that does something in the world, like op eds or something or like maybe slightly more journalistic takes. Um, um, like I have, um, like I have a book that's coming out in September about a, about well that I wrote with the Stooges Brass Band, and we will be talking about it. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll get to that in in a little bit, I guess. But but that you know that was like another another sort of way of doing scholarship. Like that's that's more geared towards like a general audience and stuff, rather than like getting into like the theoretical weeds and stuff. Like um, getting into the ten dollar words like epistemology and ontology and you know this this sort of stuff. All the other ologies. Yes, all of the ologies, Joe. <laughs> But yeah, so, so I don't know, I, like, I think, I th- I mean, it's like they, like I, I made sure that the band all got like copies of the, the article when it came out like in the journal. Um, so this is in uh, ethnomusicology is the journal that it came out in. And so, you know, like I, 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 like, I really like that, that sort of feedback. And we've talked about doing like other things, um, like maybe doing a book or something like that, but you and the Panettes. Yeah. Yeah. With the Panettes too. So, so I don't know, there are like a lot of like sort of projects, um, kind of you know, maybe in the pipeline in the future, but. So you are from, I, I, I want to step back for just a moment and, and we'll come back to all these things we've been talking about, but I just, this is a little bit of a biographical question. So you're from Nova Scotia. True. What attracted you to New Orleans? Was it the music or was it the city? Because you not only have studied the music from there, but you've also lived there, you've studied there, and you continue to, you know, your work still centers around the city of New Orleans. If I think that's a fair characterization. So, yeah, for, uh, I mean, a lot of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the dissertation is kind of taking a different direction. But the uh, but yeah, New, I mean, New Orleans is, you know, is kind of my heart home in a sense. How did that happen? Yeah. So I had always thought that New Orleans would be an amazing place to live. Like, like growing, like as a kid, in my imagination, I had like three cities that I thought would be like really cool to live in. And I've lived in all of them now. So they have been New York, New Orleans, and Montreal. <laughs> and it's just so, yeah, it, it, I was very, very fortunate that I lived in all of them. I don't know if that, those were really conscious decisions or if it just kind of turned out that way. But I do distinctly remember like as a kid being like, those would be like really cool places to live. That's funny. New Orleans, I mean, it always seemed like a really cool place. But then the music is really what is really what brought me there. And I think that's what brings a lot of people there. That's probably true. I mean, I remember. Yeah, I remember hearing the Rebirth Brass Band and that being like a revelation for me. Mm. That was, you know, that so that that would have been like maybe second, third year something like that when i first heard like the the rebirth and i think the first song i heard was casanova actually um the song that i mentioned earlier and, but that song is just super super fiery it is really really good could, could we actually like play a, like an excerpt of it or something um can you do that on this podcast how does that work well so there are some some legal difficulties mm. associated with playing commercial music but maybe i could play a short clip okay Cool, cool. So yeah, so I heard Casanova and I was like, this, this is really, really, really awesome. Um, This is like, I mean, as a trumpet player, like the trumpets are just like, they are on fire, like they're rattling, you know, Um, like they're, they're that brassy. Uh, Yeah. So, so I, you know, I, I don't know how you could not like that music as a trumpet player. 
And that's, yeah, it, I was just really into it. And, and then when I went down for the first time, I mean, I'd never been out of Canada, I don't think, until I moved down to New Orleans. Um, I'd driven through Maine once to get to, to Bishops in Quebec. But other than that, that was like my very first time out of the country. First time out of Canada and you go all the way down to Louisiana. Yeah, we drove the whole way too. We got in a car accident. It was crazy. It was it was a crazy time. Wow. Interesting. Where was the car accident? In Alabama. In Alabama. Yeah, it was in Alabama and it was like, oh man, it was like the middle of the night and we were like on it. Have I told you the story, Joe? Do you know this? You have, but the podcast audience okay. <laughs> wants to hear it and I haven't heard it for a while. So. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the, you know, it's like the wee hours of the morning or whatever and we're driving over like on the interstate overpass. And, uh, and you know, the driver falls asleep and we hit like a guardrail and then like careen over to the other side. And like, it's, you know, it's like a hundred meters or something, probably. I, I I have no idea how far it was. Um, but like we totaled the car, we were in like a little, a little Yaris, a Hyundai Yaris or something like that. And, uh, yeah, I totaled it. Um, and then we were like trying to like flag down, uh, you know, somebody, you know, we, we called, called and no, nobody was showing up. Um, like the state trooper, I think took like two or three hours to get there. Oh, wow. And then by the time they got there, like another car came and like hit the state trooper and hit us. <laughs> it was like, it was like a whole, it was like a, a whole debacle, but yeah, it ended up in like this tiny little like tow yard in like rural Alabama, which was like, you know, I'm coming from Canada and all I have is like these images of, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> of the movie deliverance. And things yeah. Like that. I mean, you know, yeah. So it's that kind of vibe. And, and I'm like, you know, in this like driving in this, this tow truck with like, you know, some dude and I go into this wood panel thing. Anyway, this is like my introduction to the U S <laughs> um, you know, we had been driving for like hours and hours and hours from Ottawa. And then, uh, we were in Alabama and got in an accident and then we had to get a rental car and drive it all the way back up. But that was like, so, you know, it, it took us a little while to get to new Orleans we had a bit of a, a bit of a delay, but we made it down. That's great. And, uh, yeah. Do you have, um, I'm just curious, do you have, uh, Acadian roots at all coming from Nova Scotia? Yes, I am Acadian. I mean, yeah. So, and do you feel any like cultural affinity to like the Cajuns of Louisiana? There is that connection. Yeah. I'm just curious. Yeah. I, you know, I don't really know. I mean, that's like a lot of people ask that. And it, it's interesting because when I think about it, like, it, like it really meant something like to like my dad's family that I was living because they would always say I live in Louisiana because I think like Louisiana like had like kind of occupies like a really interesting space in the, the Acadian imaginary you know like I can I can yeah I can see why it's yeah it's the place where where they where most Acadians went yeah uh, with you know with the exception of like some small pockets like you know in New Brunswick well actually all along the you know the the eastern coast of the U.S. yeah there are even some Acadian pockets in Maine yeah 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 I think there's quite a few Acadian folks in Maine but uh, but uh, yeah so yeah there are so yeah so that's my dad's side of the family so I mean my dad's a fluent French speaker you know he grew up speaking both both uh English and French in the household and then my me and my sister are the first generation who do not speak uh don't speak French I mean I learned some in school 
And I did have to pass a, a French um, language exam at Columbia, but uh, really, but that was like, yeah, yes, yes. Well, that's that's another thing with grad school. Yeah, you have to pass like language exams. Interesting. For, for, I'm not entirely sure why. Like, it's not. I, well, I know. I mean, I, I do know why. It's it's because it's rooted in Musikwissenschaft, Musikwissenschaften, or whatever <laughs> the hell it is. Um, you know, it's it's rooted in musicology and and that sort of thing. So usually, it's like you got to do like a lot of a lot of departments around the country. You'll have to do like. A, German exam and a French and Italian. Oh, wow. Like that's usually what it is. Yeah. So in, in a lot of music departments, and I think it might still be that in the musicology department at, or the musicology program at Columbia. I'm not sure. But you haven't had to learn German or Italian or anything like that. I have not. You know, it doesn't really have a whole lot of. I mean, not to say that there aren't, you know, Germans and Italians in New Orleans. I'm sure there are, but yeah, there are also, you know, German and, and Italian. Yeah, I mean, there there absolutely are. Um, but yeah, I just uh, it's not really it's super not relevant to extremely relevant. Yeah, like interviewing. That. Yeah, hanging out with brass band musicians. We are not speaking in German. No. Yeah. <laughs> So brass band music, New Orleans brass band music, is this a type of jazz? Like, can we describe this type of music? What can we say about it? Yeah. So, oh, man. So, like as a genre. So brass band music is some of the best music in the world. I love brass band music. Uh, I love the brass band scene. Brass band, I mean, the whole, you know, the whole second line community in New Orleans, and we'll get into that. But bra- so brass bands, you could call them jazz. I mean, a lot of, a lot of bands play jazz you know they can play the you know the standard new orleans you know um kind of what, what they would call traditionals yeah uh so you know like uh, i'll fly away down by the riverside like things like that you know sure um so there's there's that that kind of stuff but i i wouldn't i wouldn't call i this might be a hot take i don't know i, I wouldn't call brass band music jazz it's brass band music but it's like a very specific New Orleans, uh, music to New Orleans. Um, there were brass bands all throughout the world, you know, uh, like in the 19th century. And that's where the brass band tradition in New Orleans basically comes from. Okay. So from like kind of marching bands or kind of like community community bands? Like what were brass bands originally? Where where does that come from? Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, kind of community. Y'all, so, I mean, there there is a whole like uh, history of like community bands and stuff like that. You still have them in some places. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, in, in New Orleans, uh, I mean, they were I was kind of like post-Civil War. Um, you know, there's just there were there were there were the brass bands um, of different ethnicities, Yugoslavian brass bands, uh, black brass bands, Creole brass bands, white brass, you know, like, sure. yeah, well, well, not not necessarily white, because that's also something whiteness kind of, you know, becomes a thing around that time is, is a lot of um, um, people with ethnic identities kind of assimilate, you know, Italians, Germans, that sort of thing, right? Yeah. So, uh, comes from the 19th century. Um, they would play at like picnics, like different parades and stuff like that. And then, uh, there's also, um, very important to the history of brass bands is the mutual aid, mutual aid societies, benevolent aid societies, social aid and pleasure clubs, all of these sorts of community organizations, particularly, uh, so, so there were like black social aid and pleasure clubs and they, they kind of, uh, and mutual aid societies because black people could not get insurance, like life insurance and burial insurance and stuff like that. Right. They pooled the resources and they would have bands and stuff for the funeral. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so, and so there's this, uh, this, this really strong black, uh, brass band tradition that's, that started in the 19th century and has continued up until now, always incorporating like, the popular, like the current popular music into the tradition. So the music of the day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's kind of folded into what they would play. Yeah. And so, you know, you get, uh, so 
I mean, in terms of genres, like I think hip hop sometimes is closer to some brass band music. So hip hop, funk, you know, uh, the Dirty Dozen brass band, like in the in the seven, in I guess the eighties, mostly they were doing like bebop type stuff, like on the streets, like so. So these these so the the other thing is that they're jazz funerals, right? Whatever. So are you familiar with that, Joe? Or I am, but but fill in the audience in case they don't know about it. Yeah, so so I mean, the jazz funeral or funeral with music is basically after a funeral um, when you're taking uh, someone who's died to uh, to the burial site, uh, the you know the cemetery. Uh, you have music with it, um, you know, and so so it's a, a way of like kind of dealing with grief, a way of mourning, a way of finding joy, and a way of affirming life as well. Um, mm. And this is you know a very I mean this is you know a black tradition that's tied into all sorts of Afro-diasporic things too, you know. So so it's. You know, it's got roots in in the Caribbean too. It's got roots, mm. but 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 you know, it is a primarily like a, a black, a, a very proud black tradition in New Orleans. So, so the jazz funeral um, is is a kind of what what comes out of that. And the, and in a jazz funeral, you have what's called the second line. Okay, and the second line uh, is everyone that's behind the family in the band. And and so the the term second line has actually become a term for um, for parades, the weekly parades in New Orleans that happen every single Sunday. Uh, and they're and they're organized still by by social aid and pleasure clubs. I mean, the, the, you know, these social aid and pleasure clubs clubs are not there um, for insurance and stuff, uh, but they they do uh, they do exist. You know, is just a, a social club, right? But you still have these social clubs that go back to the 19th century in their lineage. Some of them, some so there there are benevolent aid societies and there are social clubs and there's different. You know, the the distinctions between okay. those things are kind of blurry a little bit. But the social aid and pleasure clubs continue and there's a, there's a bunch of them. So basically every single Sunday in New Orleans, there's going to be a second line, which is a four hour parade with, with a brass band or sometimes usually a couple brass bands at least. You know, some of the bigger ones will have like three, four brass bands and they happen for four hours and they're organized by a social aid and pleasure club. And that's like every Sunday with the exception of like August and like the last couple months, month, uh, sorry, the last couple of weeks of July. And then they have, it's just too hot. So there's no, like, it would be crazy to be out there uh, for four hours parading in the heat. Uh, like New Orleans, August heat is nothing to mess around with. So, yeah. Anyway, so that's what social aid and pleasure club. So that's, that's the whole brass band thing. And so, so whether you could call it jazz, getting back to your question, Joe, is a complicated one because jazz, you know, the way that jazz history is told is jazz moves out of New Orleans, right? And, you know, with yeah. the Great Migration, goes up to Chicago and New York. Chicago and, and uh, Kansas City. Yeah. And then eventually up to New York and, and also out to California. So, I mean, basically follows the the, the Great Migration. Um, there's, there's different kind of migrations, um, you know, to California, New York. Chicago. What, what um, is the Great Migration specifically? That would be like all throughout Jim, the Jim Crow period. Mm -hmm. um, so segregation. So people were were fleeing to the north. So starting what, like eighteen nineties, eighteen eighties? I mean, so that's that's like the early twentieth century. I, I mean, it runs the for a lot of the twentieth century. So there, are different people posited at different times, but it's basically um, black black Southerners moving to the north. Yeah. I think of Jim Crow as starting in the 1890s with the, um, what was it, the Dred Scott decision? I mean, that's often seen as, no, Dred Scott decision is a different one. Uh, you're thinking, uh, are you thinking of uh, Plessy versus Plessy Ferguson? Plessy versus Ferguson is what I'm thinking of. I have a bad tendency to conflate those two things. They have nothing to do with, well, I mean, yeah, they have something to do with one another. They're both part of the 
the horrible legacy of racism in the in the United States, but yes, uh, but different different rungs on that ladder. Mm-hmm. So as you're describing this, it's making me wonder. And this is not maybe an easy question to answer, but maybe you have some insight into it, having studied the city of New Orleans and the history of the music. But it seems like there are a lot of these very old traditions kind of in the New Orleans black community, and and maybe not just the black community, but we're mostly talking about the black community, uh, that have really been kept alive, but that once were more widespread. So you said brass bands used to be a big thing. Across the United States, there were community bands, there were different ethnic bands, but it seems like in New Orleans, you know, they still do the jazz funerals, or or at least they still do the second lines, which is a you know a uh, a legacy of these old jazz funerals and of that old tradition. So, why do you think New Orleans has kept these traditions alive to an extent that maybe a lot of other music scenes have not? Oh, I, I don't know, Joe. I mean, that's I I really couldn't answer that. And, and, you know, I'm not sure that so I'm not I'm also not sure that that's entirely true. I mean, it depends on how you're thinking about tradition, too. Right. Because like traditions change. Right. And, you know, you can think about about anything as a as a tradition of invention or a tradition of innovation, you know, something that's it's constantly changing. Right. You know, it's not a tradition isn't necessarily a static thing. And so, I mean, there's a whole academic kind of conversation around this you know postmodern sort of notion of tradition uh blah, blah, blah. you know like we could go on about that but and go deep into the weeds <laughs> yeah and and i don't know that i'd be able to to talk too too intelligently on it but but you know the the yeah so so there's there is a a way of thinking about tradition where you know I, i'm sure there are lots of other musical traditions um i think new people's inclination is to think about new orleans as being very exceptional um, or is like the only place where something happens, you know, but in a lot of ways, like New Orleans is, is very typical of an American city. Like um, I and I think I think like the whole coronavirus has really kind of exemplified that like New Orleans is mm. super typical in the sense that, you know, it's a gig economy. It's a cash economy. Sure. Um, we've seen, you know, like it's it's basically it's like a case study in precarity. You know, you've you've got a minimum wage of seven twenty five. In the state of Louisiana, you know, you've got largely service work, you know, in terms of jobs. Um, it's yeah. So so, you know, New Orleans has like very, um, very particular things that I think, you know, we, we tend to think of it as an exception. But I think there are a lot of things that are very, very American about it at the same time. And so, you know, I think I think you can probably say, uh, you know, you could probably extend that logic to some extent to music traditions. Right. Uh, we think about New Orleans and New Orleans, you know, certainly, I mean, these traditions do go back, but it's also like in how we think about New Orleans, you know, New Orleans is the birthplace of American music, you know, in our minds. Right. And to some extent, that's right. You know, you can think about Congo Square and and, and I mean, obviously, the, the popular music of the U.S. is largely black music. Right. Absolutely. And so, you know, Congo Square in some places is the birthplace of that. You know, there's there's um, in some sense a mythology around that. But at the same time, you know, there there are I was going to say legacies that have continued. Right. And I think you kind of have to acknowledge all of that. You know, it's complicated. Oh, of course. Yeah, I think I mean, and I think that's largely where my question is coming from. Is this kind of mythologizing of the city of New Orleans? I mean, I I can't remember who it was who said that, you know, there are three unique American cities, San Francisco, Louisiana, uh, New Orleans, 
and New York and everywhere else is just Cleveland. It's rude. So rude. So, I mean, New Orleans has, it is, it is, it's rude to Cleveland and it's rude to all the other cities that get compared to Cleveland. But, (laughs) (laughs) but it's true. I think New Orleans has a special place in the popular imagination as a place where almost that's frozen in time. And, you know, at least when people think about the music and culture, it really is associated with like this kind of preservation of a a very long ago past. But as I think you've kind of indicated, the music there is actually very vital and alive. Absolutely. Super, super. I mean, you know, the brass band community is doing amazing stuff. Big Six Brass Band, TBC Brass Band, the Panettes, the Stooges Brass Band, all these, you know, Rebirth, Hot Eight, Soul Rebels, they're all making moves and doing stuff. And um, so the music they're playing would not sound familiar to somebody who lived there in the 1920s you know it's, no i can't music imagine. has evolved absolutely absolutely you know they're they're not just playing dirges or hymns or you know but i or you know spirituals or or anything like that they're you know although that's also mixed in that's part of the the kind of the mixture i dare i say the gumbo the dreaded curse of uh the you know the dreaded trope of new orleans music um but th- but that is part of the you know part of the mixture um still and, and and one one more thing on the on the on the kind of the the point about New Orleans being exceptional. Uh, there's a great book called Remaking New Orleans Beyond Exceptional Beyond Authenticity. No, sorry, Beyond Exceptionalism and Authenticity. Um, that a couple um, Matt Sakakini, my my former advisor, and uh, Thomas Adams they 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 wrote a whole book about kind of this idea about New Orleans being exceptional, along with Sue Mobley. Um, these great people. I'm just going to throw their names out there and give them a shout out because, by all means, plug as many people as you want. I feel like I was just kind of ventriloquizing some of their um, their arguments. So gotta gotta cite my sources. That's uh, important. You don't want to end up a plagiarist like uh, Melania Trump or uh... I don't I don't even know. So tell me about your book. You've got a book coming out. Yes, I do, Joe. So tell me about this book. Yeah, so uh, so the Stooges Brass Band, uh, they've been around since 1996. And uh, and they're, you know, one of, one of the, the, the best brass bands in the city, I would say. You know, they're, they're, they've, they've been around for quite a while. They've made a lot of moves um, in terms of brass band, kind of changed the, the game in a sense, the brass band game business-wise. Them and a few other bands have really kind of, kind of upped the ante. You know, rather than just playing gigs, you know, they're like, you know, getting their music on like soundtracks and stuff. They've done like compositions for like um, BET and ESPN, you know, they do like music like that. Um, they have a big studio and stuff. So yeah, they're really, really, um, innovative, awesome band, super fun to see live. They're, they're, um, incredibly entertaining. And yeah, so, so I guess it would have been like 2000, I guess it was right when I finished my master's thesis on the Panettes or not long after that, my master's thesis advisor, Matt Sakakini was like, Hey Kyle, I just got hit up by the leader of the Stooges, Walter Ramsey the other day. They want to write a book like coming up on their 20th anniversary. Do you want to do it? And I was like, Oh, that sounds like a great idea. I'm down to do that. Um, And so for like the last 
five years, the Stooges and I have, uh, you know, um, been working on this book. So we had to do like a bajillion interviews. And um, it's a lot to piece together 20 years of musical <laughs> career, especially the... So it's a retrospective? Yeah, it, it's it's a retrospective and also kind of like exam examining some of the things that I was just talking about, about, you know... Um, kind of the gig economy in New Orleans, mm. you know, stuff like that. You know, they, they, I mean, some conversations that are incredibly relevant now, uh, I mean, have always been relevant. Um, but, uh, they had, uh, one of the musicians in the band shotgun, Joe Williams was, was killed by the police back in 2004. So when you, when you say relevant to today, you, you mean in the context of a heightened awareness about police brutality, anti-black violence, yeah. anti-black violence, um, kind of, you know, everything the movement for black lives has been bringing up. Yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, uh, that's part of the story, too. Obviously, he uh, I, I interviewed his brother who actually passed away a few years ago as well. Mm. Um, Iron, Iron Macklin. Um, so, so, yeah, there's um, as a result of police brutality as well or just unrelated. No, 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 no. Uh, I, I, yeah. D- diff- different issue. Um, OK. So. So, yeah, it's you know, there, there are a lot of real stories in the book. Uh, it's uh, me and like 16 other um, 16 members of the band. Um, kind of put it together. So we did interviews. There's uh, like everyone has like a short biography in the book. Mm. Um, and then there's 12 chapters in it kind of spanning the career of the band. So, you know, I mean, basically uh, their days in high school, you know, kind of the schooling experiences that they had with some um, like legendary New Orleans band directors. Then kind of uh, go into, um, you know, the release of their first album, things like that. The story about Shotgun Joe, which I just told you, and that's a long, uh, longer story. But, you know, people can read about it in the book. And uh, we go into, you know, I, I went on the road with them for like a day. Uh, I wrote about that. That's in the book, you know, kind of like their their experiences on the road. Cool. Um, You know, because that that's that's, you know, a big part of the brass band thing. You know, brass bands do tour. They do a lot of touring and. Yeah, I don't think anyone's really written about that. So, yeah, that'll be in the book. Um, yeah, there's there's uh, all kinds of stuff, but but a really awesome band. And uh, I've gotten to know the, the guys pretty well over the years. And yeah, we're really excited about it. I was just actually, uh, Al, one of the trombonists, just called me earlier today. And we were um, talking about the book launch and what that's going to look like in a socially distant uh, environment. Mm. Um, so we're kind of, you know putting things together for that now, you know, um, and hopefully over the summer, um, we'll be able to have some sort of something, you know, maybe we'll have to do something on zoom. It is unclear. And what's the name of the book? The people are dying to know. Uh, I always forget about that. Um, like I, I feel like I've been just calling it the Stooges book for, for so long now, but it's, um, the book is called can't be faded 20 years in the new Orleans brass band game by the Stooges brass band and Kyle DeCoast. Okay. Um, so people, you can get it. Uh, directly from the publisher from the university press, uh, the university press of Mississippi. Uh, you can get it from, I mean, if you want to support Jeff Bezos, you can get it from Amazon. Don't do that. Uh, well, I mean, I'm not going to, you know, do what you got to do, but try and avoid that one. Do what you got to do. Um, you can get it from, uh, so I would recommend getting it from the press, but you can also get it from Indie Bound, uh, if you want to get it from your, or Chapters Indigo, um, or you know anything like this you you can buy it from your local bookstore if you go and order it there so it'll be uh it'll hit the shelves in september probably the best way yeah yeah you know support your your local bookstores um support your black local bookstores if you have them i mean if there still are any left then by all means support them yes absolutely they need it especially in these times yeah for sure for sure so so try and do that try not to give your money to jeff bezos if you can avoid it but uh yeah if you want to buy it uh that, that would be really cool you know yeah, 
That's, but that's the book anyway. The, the book is basically like a, a really cool, um, like a retrospective of, of last 20 years or so, like with ethnography in there. So I kind of try and immerse the readers sort of in, you know, at a second line or in the studio or, you know, different things like that, you know, just to kind of give people a, a kind of a snapshot, you know, if nothing else of, of the brass band scene. Is there much of a political lens in the book or are you mostly focusing on the music and the life and times oh man the music is political you know of course i'm not denying that and so <laughs> so so i think um you know i can't help but like put put my politics in there i mean everyone does you know but it's but it but it is it is difficult when you're negotiating you know with like 16 other people and you know that everyone's got their own kind of political view so so I'm very explicit of, you know, like, you know, when it's me saying things, it's not like I'm like putting words into people's mouths. Like I kind of in the book, um, we, you know, we try and let everyone speak for themselves. Mm. So like the chapters are basically like, you know, interviews that are then like spliced together kind of, or, you know, like interview chunks about different topics, you know, they, they kind of weave into a whole, but like at the beginning of each chapter, I have basically, I'm writing in my voice. Mm. I'm kind of describing being at these different places and, and that sort of thing. So yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of what the book is like. I, it's, it's going to be a really interesting book, I think for readers. I, I hope anyway. Um, I think it's like, it sounds unique. It, it really does. It sounds, yeah, you know, I mean, different. Yeah. There, there are like a number of different. A number of people who have done like sort of interview based books like that. There's a, a book called um, I think it's like the Brothers Neville or something like that, or the Brothers by um, like some rock journalist guy. You know, that's very much like that. You know, there are a few other books that are like um, you know collaborative sort of ethnography type of deal. That, that's kind of what the model that I was using, I guess, and thinking about, you know, addressing it both to you can look in the footnotes and like I've got all my citations and stuff in there or you can just read it and hopefully it will have a very um, hopefully it has a, a decent uh, narrative. I really wanted to have it like cohesive while not while also kind of like maintaining all of the sort of tensions between each of us, you know, because we don't all agree on things. And like, you know, I think those sometimes those um, disagreements are really productive um, and interesting for a reader, too. Did you feel like there was a lot of tension and disagreement while you were writing it? I mean, I don't want you to, to name names or no, 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 or, uh, or out anyone <laughs> or anything. But uh, no, 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 I don't I don't mean out sexually, but you know what I mean? I don't no, want... no, 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 I know. I know. Don't I, open any wounds. No, there's not like huge disagreements and stuff like I really like the political angles that I take, I tried to like, make sure that like, yeah, that's what, you know, everyone like feels pretty strongly about this. And I don't mind saying that, you know, um, while also being myself, you know, there's, it's like, it's interesting when you're, when you're writing and like consult, like, so like I talked to the Stooges about like editing and stuff. Um, and I circulated like tone, like the full, like edited, like the full interview, um, manuscript type of deal, which was like, you know, 300,000 words or something ridiculous like that. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, this giant tome of interviews, um, before I even edited them. And so we, we cut some things out and we're like, yeah, don't put that in the book, you know, like, <laughs> you know, so like there's, you know, stuff like that. Um, but no, I mean, we, we generally agree on a lot of stuff, but I, but I think it's interesting for a reader to just see like those sorts of points of disagreement and to see, you know, and to just, it's, it's hard to, to write when you are, writing about a collective of people, sure. you know, especially when you know all of them individually. So it's not like you can't always say the Stooges did this. It's like, well, the Stooges did this, but there were a bunch of decisions that went into this career move, you know? And so 
you know, that, that becomes like a, I don't know, kind of a, an interesting challenge when you're writing is how to like present those things so that you're not like writing about a group of people as a monolith. That sounds like an, uh, definitely an interesting challenge, especially when you think about books in that kind of vein, which is, you know, writing about a band. Mm-hmm. You know, usually you're, you're, you're dealing with a much smaller band than that. Or, you, or, you know, if you were writing about big band music, you would probably be focusing on the band leader. But in your case, you're talking about a band that is big. Yeah. And it's, that I don't, that I assume doesn't have a conductor. There's no like one guy who's kind of running yeah. the show. So there's the band leader and that's Walter. And Walter, okay, like, there is a band leader. He, yeah. And he runs the, you know, he runs the show like, like we did all the contract stuff with the press and, and that sort of thing, right? He's, he's kind of the running the business side of things. Um, and then you've got, I mean, the band has, I, I have 16 people featured in the book. But they're, they have like at least 40, 50 musicians who've gone through the band and have not only, like, they not only know the Stooges tunes, but then, they, you know, they've, they've moved on and they now play with all kinds of brass bands all over the city. So like, there's, I don't think that there's a single brass band in the city that doesn't have a member that once played with the Stooges. Okay. So they're really an institution. Yeah. That's, that's kind of the thing, you know? So like, while it is a story about the Stooges, in some some sense, it also is about just the brass band scene at large because you've got musicians that have played in all of the bands, you know. And it's about a group of individuals, but it's also about a particular institution within that scene, which is yeah. the Stooges. Yeah, I mean, they're, they are an LLC, too. Like, that's... the <laughs> Oh, okay, okay, literally. Yeah, so... The, and they have, like, a full studio. So they have... Yeah. I mean, like, I'm talking, like, uh, I don't know how many square feet this thing is, but, you know, like, a huge, huge mixers. Like, they've they've kind of built this up, you know? They have rehearsal spaces for other bands. They have, like, a t-shirt press. Like... Oh, wow. Like, this is really... It's, you know, and they're and they're building, like, a music school. They They have all these instruments that they're repairing, like... Like it's it's like a really really um, impressive impressive. It's a it's a multifaceted operation they've got. They're a for sure a real music factory. Yeah. No. <laughs> I, oh my god. Absolutely. I mean, and they're trained. You know, like all all like a lot of the young musicians who are coming up now. Um, you know, the the way the school system is now, it's it's completely charterized pretty much. And so yeah. you know, while there are good band programs still, like there are far fewer of them, and there are far fewer band teachers who know how to teach like marching band you know in school mm-hmm. um you know because you have like all these transplants mostly white kids from the northeast who are coming down to teach yeah well you know there's a lot of teach for america people you know oh um, yeah it's like that sort of thing and so you know people who don't really understand the city who come down and so you know that's a real issue too um so so but anyway and, and like, isn't teach for america infamous for sort of creating a situation where you have schools with no real stability in terms of having the same teachers from year to year. Isn't it kind of famous for degrading the quality of schools because you have all these people who come in, they don't know the community. And just as they're starting to sort of understand the community, they leave. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's, that's more or less what the situation, you know, I don't, I don't, I've never done TFA. I've never done teach for America. It's not, um, not my thing, obviously, but and I'm not like totally denigrating it either. I'm sure a lot of these people are doing it, no, you know, doing sure. good stuff. But no, but it's just it's just not you know it's this it goes with the whole school choice thing and the, you know which I'm sure you you know a good deal about yeah. Joe. But um, and charters isn't New Orleans like completely charterized and privatized at this point? Like no public schools left. Yes, or am yeah. I thinking of 
Uh, yeah, yeah I, th- I think that's that's more or less accurate. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, if you go, yeah, g- going back to the, the point about exceptionality, like New Orleans is kind of the canary in the coal mine in some sense, uh, because, okay. I mean, you know, you look at the, the charter school system and it's like, oh, oh, like I it looks like this is, you know, they call it like a, an experiment, you know, um, it's like, yeah. And, and I hope they're not going to charterize things, but with Betsy DeVos or DeVos or whatever the hell her name is in office. Okay, it's DeVos, but DeVos or who knows, I don't know, but yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. With this administration and it's, it's rampant obsession with school choice and school privatization and dismantling the public system. Yeah. It's no good, man. Sadly, that may be that may be the future for everyone. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, getting back around to the, you know, the Stooges, I mean, so they, you know, they've stepped in and I mean, they're teaching a lot of young brass band musicians, like, here's how to play this music and how to play it right too. Because, uh, you know, you can't just go and play the saints and whatever way you want. There's, there's a form, you know, there's a form that you should follow and there's the traditional way of doing it. So also tying back into that conversation about tradition, like there, you know, if, if, you know, New Orleans has maintained, uh, traditions more than anywhere else, it, you know, uh, in terms of music, like that's why, I guess, you know, if, if that's the case, and I don't know that it is, but, um, you know, you have a lot of, a lot of music teachers who really, really care. I mean, I think New Orleans probably is somewhat above average in terms of, of maintaining a, a kind of an identity in terms of its music scene, but I am speaking, you know, from ignorance here and from impressions and mm-hmm. yeah well hey you know i may be totally wrong you're you're speaking from a particular vantage point and uh absolutely and it's a valuable one yeah whereas you know i don't know that cleveland has the same uh no i'm just picking on cleveland <laughs> nothing man why are you picking on cleveland so much i don't know anything about the cleveland music scene i'm sure it's fantastic and i'm sure that they have their own rich traditions um and if i'm wrong well at least i've said some nice words um (laughs) is the stooges is it all black or primarily black yeah 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 so like all the brass bands that i've worked with uh are all black brass bands um you know they they do have a white guitarist uh, who tours with them on the road um and they've had like white keyboardists at different times so that's like the opposite of the old uh some of the old big bands from the 40s the white bands that would have the one black guy the black drummer or the black guitar player you know yeah you you have you have the token white guy yeah interesting so as a white guy yourself writing this book trying to take all these interviews and tell a story from it trying to weave a narrative how do you negotiate you know, not wanting your voice to override the voices of the people in the band and, you know, trying to sort of take your vantage point as a white person into account and make sure that it is, uh, well, just properly accounted for. Well, I, I think the way describe to describe that process. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think the way to do it is to account for it in the writing <laughs> is to say, Hey, I'm a white guy and there are things that I, you know, like, I do not know what it's like to be black in the U.S. at all. So I say that in the book. I say, like, our experiences, but also, like, you know, the experiences of everyone in the band differs as well. You know, there are certain continuities. But, like, yeah, so, I, I mean, I say in the book, like, in the introduction, um, either the introduction or the preface, I don't remember. But I say, like, yeah, I, you know, it, you should read this knowing that I'm a white person. And I, and I, and I recognize that there are things that, you know, that I'm not going to understand. But... But I, I do want to make it clear that, like, 
you know, the, the concern that I have for everyone in the brand, you know, like everyone in the band and for the, the things that the, the band members are bringing up, like is, is real, you know? And so, yeah, like we're kind of united in, in, in certain political things within the book and in certain um, kind of positions. Um, and, you know, there are just, there are differences. Um, but you just, yeah, you acknowledge that and say, Hey, this is what's going on. This, these, these are like the politics of like, this authorship, like I'm a white co-author with, with, um, black musicians, uh, who are my co my, you know, the other co-author and that's, that's how mm -hmm. we're doing it, you know? Yeah. So I, you know, it's, it's just the sort of thing that you got to think about and that you have to write out, you know, you can't hide that. You just have to be upfront about it. And because I think part of it is, you know, you, you want, you want people to like think critically about what's being in the written in the book, you know, and they're like, times in the interviews where I'm like, oh my God, like I really did not understand what was being said. <laughs> you know, like I think there's, there's a point where I'm talking to Virgil, uh, in one of the interviews, um, and we're talking about, about police violence and, and I like kind of was thinking about it, not in a systemic way. I was thinking about like racist police, like individual racist police, you know, sure. um, uh, which, you know, is not the case. This is a, a huge systemic issue. And, and Virgil was like, no, there are black cops too. Like that was how he made the, the argument, you know, he said that, but then he, you know, him and I think it was Drew who's the, the other person I interviewed and, but they, you know, they both, um, really like taught me a lot <laughs> in that moment, you know, and, and while, you know, I'm, I'm hoping. Could you just explain it a little yeah. bit more? So you were talking about individual police officers being racist. Right. Well, I was talking. And he kind of corrected you. Well, it, it was more like, well, yes, it, it was like, yes, it is an issue of racist police officers. That That's part of it. But it's also a broader systemic issue. Hmm. So I, I, maybe it was Drew that told that, that really, you know, got me thinking a little bit more critically than than how we were talking about it. But um you know, it's, you know, the, the, the prison industrial complex, it's mass incarceration. It is, you know, a for-profit prison system. Like it's all of these things, right? And these things are all pretty advanced in Louisiana, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, yeah. Uh, geez. Uh, I mean, in the nineties, and I don't think it is anymore, but it's pretty darn close. But in the nineties, New Orleans was, or actually, no, I think until recently it was like the incarceration capital of the world. It might still be, I, it is unclear to me. Um, but they have more it's, people it's incarcerated. Yeah, I mean, Angle, yeah, it's, it's yes. I mean, we know this is a problem around the United States. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Over-incarceration, you know, mass incarceration. But it's like particularly bad in some places. And I think New Orleans, if I'm not mistaken, and Louisiana generally yeah. is one of them. Yeah, it's incredibly bad. Yeah. So, so I, you know, I think, I think Drew in, in that moment in the book, like kind of was like, no, you know, like it's a much larger thing. And I think, you know, I hope when people read that, that they're also like, huh, okay. You know, um, because like, uh, you know, I, I hope it, it provides like an educational opportunity for everyone else too. Yeah. So, but you know, there, there are like moments in the book like that where like, you know, there's like mild embarrassment that like, oh, well, of course, like, like, yes, that is, you know, um, there are teachable moments in it, but like, I thought it was important to leave those things in. Right. Um, so that's when I say like tensions and, and, you know, those, when I'm talking about like the tensions in the book and I didn't want to get rid of those, I mean like things like that, you know, um, not, not even necessarily disagreements. Cause I absolutely disagree. I absolutely, sorry, agree that, that, you know, it is a huge systemic issue. Right. But like I left little, little slippages and things like that in the book because I thought it was more interesting for the reader and hopefully more educational. Like it lets the reader join the journey 
that you're taking and maybe also the journey that the band members are taking. And, and I should say like, yeah, and that's not ever like I like you for that's going to be like a white reader, for example, you know, oftentimes yeah. he's like, oh, yes, I've clued into that. Right. Um, that's like, a you know. And not, yeah, I mean, there might be some black readers who are like, oh, yes, okay, yeah, right. There's, there's a larger thing going on, you know, the, the, the kind of militarization of the police force, you know, is brought up like that's, that's a thing, you know, um, but yeah, anyway, so the, the, depending on the, on the readers, like, I hope it does something, you know, I hope that those little tensions and teachable moments, um, do something in the world when people read it. Yeah. So that's, that was kind of the goal of leaving those things in. Yeah. And at the very least, it might, it might, make it more interesting might make for a more compelling read yeah hopefully i mean yeah we'll at least see. that's the hope yeah we'll see i have no idea who, who knows that's the dream uh, but yeah but we you know we've been working on this book for so many years now it's like <laughs> like the number of calls that we've had and 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 sit down interviews and things um you know just like me ch- because like what you know if if i were around for the past 20 years like it would it, i'm sure it would have been much easier to read but because i was only you know me and the stooges did this in the last five years or so like there's kind of like sort of five years of the band that's encapsulated in the book but then a broader history but anyway when you're writing that that longer history that you're not there for it takes a lot of fact checking mm. and it takes fact checking with multiple people because memory is so fallible you know like you don't remember where you were in that photo 10 years ago, 20 years ago, sometimes, um, you know, when you're, when you're asking people to recall things from 20 years ago, I mean, you know, you, you got to do a lot of fact checking and stuff, but, um, but yeah, anyway, I forget where I was going with that point, but, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just a lot of work. We, we put a ton of work into it over the last uh, five years or so. Where does the name come from? The title can't be faded. Is that a lyrical reference or yes. does that come from one of the interviews? Uh, so it's, uh, well, I mean, kind of both. So it's, um, it is the title of one of their songs, Can't Be Faded. And uh, Walter, the, the band leader, he wrote it. When, so they, they all went to the, the New Orleans Center for the Creative Arts, NOCA, in New Orleans. It's trained like a bunch of incredible, like John Batiste from the Colbert, uh, Stephen Colbert. Oh, yes. Um, he, he went to NOCA, for example. Um, uh, like some of the a, f- a number of the original uh, members of the Stooges went to Noka as well, and uh, and while Walt was there, he uh, you know he was kind of the the song was kind of a flex on his composition chops, and he was like like it's got pretty complicated changes. The 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 runs are like really hard to get under your face. Like it's a you you got a shed to be able to play it, and it's a fu- it's a really I remember being at one of the rehearsals once and like it was it was the song that they were using to teach the young brass band musicians like how to play brass band music but it's like a really hard song so 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 yeah that's where can't be faded comes from and it also comes from like okay you know it's a kind of posture you know like can't be faded like they've been around for 20 years you know to well just about 25 now actually like you know bands come and go and they certainly do in new orleans frequently enough in terms of brass bands but like they have you know considerable staying power so it's kind of a statement of that you know uh, it's a declaration of resilience and and uh and longevity yeah for sure for sure yeah and you know and i think i think the book is also kind of does some of that work too of like you know of kind of cementing the legacies of these musicians i i hope at least i hope it does you know like i i want it to do that you know and, I, and i'm hoping that like when like because i also want young brass band musicians to read it too because that that's so al uh trombonist who i i said that i was on a call with earlier today 
uh, Al was, you know, he, that is one thing that he stated to me, like in, in the early stages of the book was like, you know, it'd be really nice to have like something to show our grandkids, you know, mm. something to show like young musicians coming up. So like, yeah, that's something that I, that I wanted to also try and do with the book. So I've, you know, we, we kind of addressed it to like different audiences. And I think it would be interesting to go back and ask the guys like who they were picturing reading it, uh, when they were talking to me, you know, because they were conversations with me, but you know, it's like with this podcast, I'm thinking about the audience who will listen to this too. And I, it'd be interesting to know, like, of course. you know, um, what sort of audience everyone, who do they have in mind? Yeah. Cause I, th- I think it's, I think it, it would be, yeah, it would just be interesting um, to go back and ask everyone again, like during that interview, who are you addressing that to? You could, I mean, if you read it, you can kind of read between the lines at different times, but yeah. Okay, Kyle. So before we wrap things up here, I just want to sort of touch on the two kind of big elephants in the room or big news stories, things that are affecting the world that I think are on a lot of people's minds right now. One of them is obviously the fact that we are still in the midst of a global pandemic. Things seem to be calming down a little bit. Things are reopening, but nonetheless creates a lot of uncertainty for the future and our lives are still definitely affected Mm -hmm. pretty much everywhere. And the other is, you know, we could call it an uprising, protest movement, whatever you want to call it, but the kind of reaction and aftermath of the death of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. You know, I think these things have got a lot of people talking and got a lot of people thinking. And so I'm just curious how this is sort of relating to your own work or even to the field that you're working in. Like, how do you see these things impacting going forward? Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, I think one thing that's important to remember is that everything that's going on right now is um, in some sense, like a culmination of so much work by, um, I mean, majority black activists who have been working um, with the movement for black lives, uh, Patrice Cullors, Alicia Garza, um, uh, Opal Tometi, you know, who, you know, the, these these activists who've, who've really, um, I mean, you know, since since Ferguson, you know, since like 2014, really, I, I guess it would have been have really been have really really been been pushing this stuff more and more into kind of into the the limelight i guess and and i you know it seems like the pandemic's uh, really kind of i mean opened up uh, a lot of white folks eyes to what's going on certainly you know cuz i mean these things are you know and i shouldn't say just white folks but but a lot of people who had not been paying attention or simply did not care i have wondered about this because you know this is not the first time an unarmed or defenseless black person has been killed by a police officer even since 2014 i mean it's happened kind of a lot so all it's like every yeah all the time it's it's pretty common yeah it's just these things don't always they don't always circulate and they you know i think but this one has clearly hit a nerve in a bigger way than probably any since 2014 or even before i mean i I, just the scale of protests and and riots and whatnot i mean it probably uh would be comparable to 1968 maybe even more so than like what happened in the aftermath of the rodney king uh incident in 1992 i think this is probably on a bigger scale and i wonder if the pandemic is in some way contributing to that maybe the fact that so many people are out of work and Maybe more people have time to go to protests because they're they're laid off or furloughed or whatever. That's one kind of theory I have. And yeah. then there's also just the the anxiety that that the virus has created in people. Maybe has making it easier for people to 
to feel things when they see that that horrible video. Maybe you know, I I don't really know because I mean another thing that we have to write, you know, people are also protesting for different reasons. Um, you know, like I I heard someone like I saw on Twitter. Um, I think it was maybe earlier today that someone was out there protesting just police violence, but they didn't agree with Black Lives Matter, which is crazy to me. Obviously, you know, but like, but, you know, so there's like, you know, there's other stuff going on, too, um, you know, and, and I should also, yeah, of course, with any protest movement, you have a million different versions of, of what people are protesting. Yeah, yeah. And, and I should also I should also, you know, note that, like, it's it's not just George Floyd either. It's like, you know, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, um, like a number like all of these these you know, this, this happened in rapid succession. You know, this was, I mean, Breonna Taylor was... Ahmaud uh, Arbery as well. I mean, that wasn't... Ahmaud Arbery, yeah, yeah. That wasn't at the hands of the police, although I think those two no, guys... they had ties to law enforcement. Yeah, I mean, it, but but it, it still it still um, speaks to the, you know, the point that there is a kind of that culture within police departments, which is why people are saying defund the police and abolish the police now, um, is because there's a recognition of, you know, kind of cultural and institutional rot. Um, in a sense, within police departments, um, but within, in some sense, the legal system more broadly. Yeah, the criminal justice system. But, but, but yeah, I mean, it extends to like these two, you know, uh, vigilante white supremacists, right? Um, who killed Ahmaud Arbery. I mean, it's the same, it's, it's the same, you know, these things are very related. They're, they're not absolutely distinct things, right? No, absolutely. So, yeah, you know, I and think. And I didn't mean to just emphasize George Floyd. It just seems like that particular video seems to have been the flashpoint that that ignited for sure the what we're seeing right now yeah and and you know so, even more so than the other incidents Although yeah clearly you know whenever there's the straw that breaks the camel's back it's just that it's it's the sort of the the final straw that gets people to to rise to their feet and i'm not saying that nobody was doing that before but oh, yeah. clearly people more people it. are getting involved now you're hearing more people yeah thinking about white privilege and thinking about systemic racism than than a couple weeks ago for sure and and it's like you know like i remember seeing that um like that white supremacy like pyramid with like there was like a line on it that said like here's covert white supremacy here's overt white supremacy okay i haven't seen that yeah anyway you know but there are things like microaggressions on it you know like uh, correcting um correcting someone's pronunciation stuff like that you know and so like i don't know it seems like right now yeah like the spectrum between being a member of the Ku Klux Klan yeah, exactly. and just yeah. making insensitive remarks because you don't know any better. Yeah. And it, you know, it seems like that is really shift. Like a lot of things like, um, to some folks are becoming a lot more, you know, overt and obvious, you know, and I don't know if that's a product of time. Like I have no idea, you know, I'm not an expert on these things by any means, but by any means, but uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I really don't know, but it's, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, for some people there's, there's a lot of frustration for some people. There's a lot of optimism right now. There's, yeah, it's it's just it's a crazy moment. It is a crazy moment, Joe, and and a really exciting one, I think, for a lot of activists who are seeing people paying attention. But also, you know, God only knows where this is going to go. God only knows where the election is going to go. Impossible, yeah. In twenty, I've you know, I've I have no idea. You know, um, yeah. I mean, we can speculate, but that's about about all we can do. Yeah, you know, it's it's it is quite the moment to be alive, Joe. I agree with you about that. It is that one thing that is really interesting is everyone seems to be acknowledging that this is a historical moment. Yeah. Which is such a curious thing to like think about people seeing a historical moment as being significant while it's happening, you know? 
I think people probably knew that like when World War II started, when it ended, yeah. you know, I think there've always been, I, I think when 9-11 happened, I remember that day people were saying, in fact, I remember on 9-11, Mm-hmm. I was in sixth grade and that my, my teacher is the one who announced to the class mm-hmm. what had happened that morning. They kind of kept it hush hush from the students for most of the day. But I remember the teacher saying on that day, oh, today is September the 11th. People are going to remember this date mm-hmm. for a long time. And it, that's still how we refer to the incidents of that day is as 9-11. Mm-hmm. So it, it is interesting, as you say, to to be in a moment and sort of realize, oh, yeah, this is going to be one that people will talk about like decades from now. Yeah. And it's like, what? And did, I agree. And what did you do right now? You know, what? Right. What are you doing? You know, are you, are you, you know giving to bail funds? Are you out on the streets? Are you, you know, signing petitions? Like, like, you know, calling your Senate, like, you know, this is, this is a time where, where a lot of movements happening and, uh, and it's, yeah, it's, um, it's interesting if nothing else. So as a white guy mm-hmm. and, you know, maybe who feels some obligation to educate his fellow white brethren, uh-huh. <laughs> what are some, what are some good ways that, uh, what are some things that you can be doing such that, when you think back on this moment, you know, 10 years from now mm-hmm. and, and somebody asks you, well, what, what were you doing at that time? You can look back and at least feel like, okay, I was doing something. Okay. I wasn't, I wasn't on the wrong side of history. Yeah. Well, what well, are some good things people can be doing? I mean, they're, beyond the obvious of like, don't go shooting people and uh, well, yeah, commit uh, acts of horrible murder. Uh, yeah. So I mean, you can contribute to bail funds, like I said, uh, obviously going out to your protests, you know, um, you know, if you're not immunocompromised and you feel safe doing that, uh, you know, please do that. Make your voice heard in that, you know, in, in the literal way out in the streets. Um, you know, I mean, there's, uh, you know, make sure you educate yourself. Don't don't reach out to all of your black friends and burden them uh, with with, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm just saying this is, you know, that's kind of why I'm asking you is is so that you can take that place. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so doing this uh, and not just. Yeah, yeah, right, right. You know, so, um, you know, that's part of the discussion, too. Like, don't don't overburden people, you know, um, support black businesses, um, which is especially important during the, the pandemic. They're also um, mutual aid funds that are set up in a lot of cities um to to help people um with costs of you know related to the pandemic just in general mm. so mutual aid funds are are a great resource uh, or a great a great um you know thing to donate to um if you if you can do that if you're the the means to do that trying to think of what other sorts of, i mean you know things like that you know make you know do your reading educate yourself try and learn you know learn black history learn indigenous history in canada and the u.s you know globally even you know read uh, make sure that you're not just talking out the side, of, you know, maybe read about uh, brass bands from New Orleans. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, that's part of it, you know, maybe pick up a copy. It can't be faded. It, it, you could learn a thing or two. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think I think I think the Stooges uh, teach a lot of lessons in that book for sure. And, you know, I try to facilitate that and kind of give it some some scaffolding, um, you know, with a bit of historical research and ca- contextualizing stuff. But yeah, you know, that is, you know, that's that's one way to do things, you know, recognize that like um, if you're if you're new to like activism, and, you know, I'm not saying that I'm like a particularly experienced um, activist or, or anything like that. But, you know, if, if you're new to it, you know, you don't need to reinvent the wheel. There are a lot of people who are already doing work, you know, 
see who the the people are in your community who are doing the the things that you you know that you support and and get behind them you know yeah follow the lead of activists in your communities that's what i would say that's a pretty good figuring out you know grassroots you know stuff like that like that's where a lot of the really important stuff is happening you know and you can do a lot of stuff at local at the local level that you know, will then go on to to influence things um, elsewhere. So people always forget about local politics, and that's really what touches people's lives the most directly. Yeah. Often, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the the different levels of government also play their role in people's lives for sure. But man, you can make a lot of a difference at the local level. And, and the other thing, and the other thing for white folks is to talk to your white friends, you know, and and talk to your family, or you know, have difficult conversations, make yourself uncomfortable, and just kind of get you know you know, get your, get your hands dirty, I guess, in a sense and, and have those conversations, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's like the real big one, you know, is like, do, do the work to educate yourself and educate the people around you. That's, that's a big part of it. It's a very interesting, it's a very interesting moment. Yeah, for sure, Joe, for sure. I hope, uh, I hope people will hear, heed that call. And I think a lot of people are, yeah, are starting to do so. I certainly hope so. You know, I, I, I want to remain optimistic and, um, Hope, hope that some serious structural change happens. And, you know, I, you know, I don't know all of the exact policy things and they're all different, different states, but, you know, defunding the police, you know, demilitarizing the police at the very least is, is a good start in every place. So. All right. Well, Kyle, is there anything else you'd like to share? Any, uh, anybody you'd like to plug? Oh man. Anybody that I'd like to plug? Oh, well, go, you know, go check out, uh, go check out some brass band music, support brass bands, you know, buy, buy some music, um, go, um, you know the Panettes. You can get their music on uh, on Apple Music and and Spotify. You know everything like that. Same with the Stooges Brass Band. You can do Panettes is spelled P I N E T T E S. By the way, um, Stooges Brass Band too. Go check them out. Uh, go check out the Big Six Brass Band. I designed a website for them. Um, they're really awesome. They just dropped a, a CD um, this past year. Um, so they're great too. Uh, that, that's about it. You know, go go check out some music. Uh, yeah sounds good all right kyle well thank you for being on the show oh yeah yeah thank you so much joe it's it's been a real pleasure it's nice to catch up with you yeah i really enjoyed it so maybe we could do it again maybe after the book comes out sounds good yeah maybe we can get uh like some of the stooges on or something like that oh yeah that would be an absolute pleasure so yeah yeah do like uh we'll see what we could do we're gonna be doing you know a whole press thing uh, i don't know what what that's gonna look like but um yeah the, the guys have something planned so um yeah we'll be in touch Well, that would be an absolute delight. All right, Kyle, thanks for being on. Cheers, dude. Thanks. A big thank you to Kyle DeCoast for appearing on the show. Please do go check out the book Can't Be Faded, written with the Stooges Brass Band. Today's episode was edited by Frank. The theme music was written by yours truly, with guitar by me, bass by Brian Duda, drums by Ian Kohler, and keyboard by John Martin. Enjoy your week.